We will be reading from the book of Hebrews, chapter 6, and it can be found on page 1003 in your Black Bibles. Therefore, let us leave the elementary doctrine of Christ and go on to maturity, not laying again a foundation of repentance from the dead works and of the faith towards God, and of, and of, instruction, and the, and of instruction about washing the laying on of hands, the resurrection of the dead, and the eternal judgment. And this we will do if God permits, for it is impossible in the case of those who have once been enlightened, who have tasted the heavenly gift and have shared the Holy Spirit, and have tasted the goodness of the word of God and the powers of the age to come, and then have fallen away to restore them again to repentance since they are crucifying once again the Son of God to their own harm and holding him up to contempt. For the land that has drunk the rain that often falls on it and produces a crop useful to those whose sake it is cultivated receives a blessing from God. But if it bears thorns and thistles, it is worthless and near to being cursed, and its end is to be burned. Though we speak in this way, yet in your case, beloved, we feel sure of the better things, things that belong to salvation. For God is not unjust so as to overlook your work and the love that you have shown for his name in serving the saints, as you still do. And we desire each one of you to show the same earnestness to have the full assurance of hope until the end, so that you may not be sluggish but imitators of those who through faith and patience inherit the promises. For when God made a promise to Abraham, since he had no one greater by whom to swear, he swore by himself, saying, Surely I will bless you and multiply you. And thus Abraham, having patiently waited, obtained the promise. For people swear by something greater than themselves, and in all their disputes an oath is final for confirmation. So when God desired to show more convincingly to the heirs of the promise the unchangeable character of his purpose, he guaranteed it with an oath, so that by two unchangeable things in which it is impossible for God to lie, we who have fled for refuge might have strong encouragement to hold fast to the hope set before us. We have this as a sure and steadfast anchor of the soul a hope that enters into the inner place behind the curtain, where Jesus has gone as a forerunner on our behalf, having become a high priest forever after the order of Melchizedek. This is the word of the Lord. Well, good morning. My name is Crawford Stevener. I'm the guest preacher here this morning for uh, John Trapp's installation service. We were uh, dear friends together as college roommates at Vanderbilt. Our wives were best friends. I'm now the RUF campus minister at Stanford University out in Silicon Valley in California. And it's a real honor and privilege to be with you here this morning uh, to give the sermon. We're just so happy for the Trapps. Uh, we're happy for, for John and Chrissy and for all their children, for Owen and Lucy and Georgia and Betsy and Hank. We, uh, we're, we're thrilled for Christ the King for this church. Many of you know, but if you don't know John yet, you're getting a man of high character uh, with gifts of leadership and teaching 
he's a dear friend to many. He has a, a deep heart for the gospel and a love for people and for Christ. Uh, Dr. Martin Lloyd-Jones, when talking about preachers and preaching, said, uh, it's one thing to love to preach. It's another thing to love those to whom you preach. And in, in John, you're getting a pastor who both loves to preach and loves God's people. Uh, it's, it's a tricky thing to, to preach a sermon on an occasion like this, the installation of a new pastor. We've used that word several times this morning. Might be a new one for you, the installation of a pastor. It's kind of like your, what happens to your iPhone when you plug it in overnight at 3 a.m. You're installing some new software. That's what we're doing to John today. Um, <laughs> and talking about what to preach uh, this Sunday, um, I, I spoke with John and he said, don't preach about me, preach the gospel. Uh, May you and may he never grow tired of hearing Christ being proclaimed from this pulpit. Uh, so let's, let's do that this morning. We've heard the scripture read. Uh, our sermon topic this morning is on the assurance of salvation. It's one of the most common questions I hear from students and from people is, is how do I know that uh, the promises of God are for me? How do I know if it's all really true? How can you be sure? How can I be so sure? And that's, that's many of us this morning, we wonder. There's so many reasons to doubt. Uh, is God's word true? Is he really doing all that he's saying he's doing? And am I a part of that? Uh, let's pray this morning before we uh, look at the scripture and um, explore this topic together this morning. Let's pray. Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, the one true God, we um, sit before you here uh, in worship of you, the God of spirit and of truth. We pray that you will uh, meet us where we are. You say that your word uh, always accomplishes its purposes and never comes back to you empty. So we pray by the power of your Holy Spirit, you will do that this morning to us. We ask this in the name of Jesus, in whose name we pray, amen. When your child, or maybe you, first found out about a place called Disney World, where there was little real Elsas and Annas and uh, Cinderella and Buzz Lightyear and now all the Star Wars characters are actually there at this one place and you can go there and talk with them and touch them and do all their cool rides, the question that comes to your mind is not like, well, that seems like an interesting place to me. It's, can we go? And it's similar for uh, maybe when a new restaurant in the city gets a, a Michelin star and you don't think, oh, well, my compliments to the chef. You think, can we get a reservation? And it's similar, the same for God's promises that he makes in scripture. They sound so amazing, right? There's, there's these things like this utopian vision of a lion laying down with a lamb. Or all of your sins will be forgiven. Everything you've ever done in the past, everything you're doing right now, and everything you'll do in the future, if you believe in Jesus, will be forgiven, will be blotted away, and will be wiped out. In fact, God says, behold, I am making all things new. And then in the end, I will wipe away every tear from your eye. All the brokenness, all the sadness, everything wrong in the world will be taken away. And the question we have, is that for me? How do we know? How do we know that these promises, these beautiful things will actually come true and how do we tap into that? Well, this is exactly what the writer of the book of Hebrews in chapter six is talking about and he unfolds two different ways that we can bolster our assurance of salvation that these things belong to you and I. 
Uh, the first is you have to determine, do you have a real, genuine faith or is it a counterfeit? And the second, does God actually keep his promises? So let's look at the first. This requires some introspection. Do I have real, do I have real faith or some sort of counterfeit? Uh, the passage before you is talking about two different types of people. There are uh, people that identify as Christians who make it to the finish line, who stick with Jesus all the way to the end, and there are those who fall away. Now, it's important to know that uh, the passage is addressing, again, people that are inside the church, people part of the covenant community. It's not talking about people that have no interest in Christ or who don't claim to follow Jesus. Uh, this is kind of a family conversation, and if that's not you this morning, there's plenty for you to, to hear in this sermon. But that's what the author is addressing. People that identify as Christians, uh, people that are part of God's family. If you open up your Bible again and look in verses four through six, there's these phrases like those that have been enlightened, that have tasted the heavenly gift, who have shared in the Holy Spirit, who have tasted of the goodness of the word of God and the powers that are to come, and yet they fall away. These Descriptions have been notoriously difficult to understand or to interpret. Uh, many in the ancient church believed that they were references to the, the sacraments of the church, that tasting the heavenly gift was taking the Lord's Supper, that being enlightened was baptism. Um, and just because you do these sort of outward rituals doesn't mean your heart possesses real faith. Uh, the book of Hebrews says that there are, there are those that are participating in the life of the church. So for us today, there, there are those that are they're here today that are serving in the nursery, that are partaking of the Lord's Supper, that are involved in a small group at this church, and yet they walk away from Christianity. And very gravely, the, the passage says that such people have no hope because they've walked away from Jesus. They, they cannot be restored I live in the San Francisco Bay Area. Uh, people say it's where Christianity has come to die. Uh, according to the, the Barna Institute, it's the least churched area in America. It's also the most de-churched place in America, the place where people who once identified as Christians or participated in the life of church no longer do so. And uh, if there's this place where people go, where religion goes to die, if there's this sociological reality that, that people you know and love that, that once identified as Christians and now no longer do, if there's these trends of subsequent generations no longer uh, identifying uh, with the Christian faith, what are we supposed to do with that? What are we supposed to make of this? And, and do you see how that connects to our assurance of our own salvation, if, if this is happening at cultural, culture at large and people that we know, how do we know it'll be any different for me? How do we know it'll be any different for you? Well, the way that the Bible talks about this is that those people who, who ultimately fall away, they never had real genuine faith. It was a counterfeit. The, the Bible's most preeminent example of this is Judas Iscariot, who was numbered as one of the 12, who saw Jesus' miracles, who, who participated in the early ministry of the church and yet fell away. He didn't lose his faith. He never had it to begin. So, so what is this faith? How do we know if we have it? What do we need to do? Well, quite simply, it's a real trusting in Jesus. It's a clinging to Jesus as your only hope as you stand before God. And this 
exhortation is given to an audience in the book of Hebrews who were used to relating to God in a different kind of way. Back in the Old Testament, there were these laws that they had to keep, sacrifices that they had to make. There were rituals and customs. There were things you had to do to approach God in order to be sort of found worthy in his sight. And Jesus is taking this whole religious system and he's turning it upside down. And he's saying, quit working for me. I've done the work for you. You no longer need a human priest who goes between you and God. You don't need to make sacrifices to make God think well of you. You don't have to atone for your own brokenness or messed upness, to use a technical term. Jesus has finally and fully done the work on the cross. And the writer is saying, don't go back. Don't go back to that other way. Cling to Jesus. He's your go-between. He is your high priest. Now, that's a very religious sounding idea. Jesus is your high priest. What does it actually mean? It means that you no longer need another person to go between you and God. You can go directly to the source. You don't need someone to broker God's grace for you if you have Jesus. All you need is a brother or a sister who points you to Jesus. And in knowing John Trapp and in talking with him, that's exactly what your new pastor wants to do. He wants to point you to Jesus and show you that Jesus is advocating for you, that he is your priest, that he is your go-between. He is interceding for you and Jesus doesn't lose his people. If you're wondering this morning, uh, can I lose my salvation? If you're worried about it, if you have that question that so many of us have, I want you to know that the Bible says if you have a real faith in Jesus, it can't be lost. There are a bunch of passages in scripture that teach this. Uh, Romans 8.30 says that, that those whom God calls, he justifies, he makes righteous. Those whom he justifies, he glorifies. There's this, there's this chain that cannot be broken. Paul says in Philippians 1 that God will finish the work that he's begun in you, that, that he will bring it to completion and Jesus in John 10 says, my sheep hear my voice and no one can snatch them out of my hand. If you belong to Jesus, you cannot be lost. You can count on that. And if you're wondering, you know, do I have this faith? Is it something that I possess? Uh, all you need to know is, are you banking on the outward uh, activities, your own works, the things that the church has to offer, or... Are you clinging to Christ and Christ alone? Now, there are all kinds of evidences that can help you uh, feel assured that you are resting in Jesus. And the passage goes on to talk about this, doesn't it? You noticed the discussion of the fields. There's these two fields. They're both getting rain. Uh, one, one of the fields bears fruit. The other one doesn't. Uh, the writer says, you know, in verse um, 10, God's not unjust. He sees the work that you're doing. He sees your love and service of the saints as, as fruit of this heart that is resting in Jesus. And so the author's not using scare tactics. He's not like prison Mike in the office trying to like scare you straight. He's, he's trying to be loving and he's saying in your case, when you heard Julie read it in verse nine, in your case, beloved, we feel sure of better things. We feel sure of things that belong to salvation. And, and in verse 11, he says, he, he desires that we all have that assurance, that full assurance of hope to give you joy and peace and happiness. Because this question of assurance, 
That is an important one, isn't it? It was important in the first century. It's important in the 21st century. Uh, It was a really important historical question during the time of the Protestant Reformation in the 16th century. The, The Roman Catholic Church in that time had gotten so bad that some of, the, some of the key doctrines of the gospel had been lost. And there was, there was no such thing as an assurance of pardon. That, that time when we prayed together uh, earlier in the service and confessed our sins and, and we heard God's word and his promise that he will forgive our sins, that wasn't a thing in the 16th century. You didn't know where you stood before God and, and the history books tell you about the way that led to corruption and power and the selling of indulgences and all these sort of things. But the real sort of burden on, a, on an individual person is you, you couldn't know where you stood before God. And if you just think about that in a, a human level, it's, it's really uncomfortable to not know where you stand with another person. It's back to school week this week, tomorrow. Many of you will get new teachers or advisors. Maybe you've moved in your kids to college and there's new professors and all sorts of new relationships starting. It's really uncomfortable to not know what, what does this person think of me? If you think about a significant other or a partner and wondering what they think of you this week or this month or after you did that thing. Your business partners, are they for you? What do they think of you? Do they think you're good enough? The hiring committee, it's really, it's really uncomfortable to, know, to not know what someone thinks of you. And think about this with God. And at the, at the time of the Protestant Reformation, people started picking up their Bibles and reading and then they're saying, well, what I see in the Bible is that, that Abraham believed and it was credited to him as righteousness. By faith, we are made righteous. That, that this, God's righteousness has been given to me and so that if, if you have genuine faith, you can know where you stand before God. You can know. If you have faith in Jesus, you are his beloved child. No one can snatch you from his hand. You cannot fall away. You can know what God thinks of you. I said there were two ways in this passage that we can bolster how we know. How do we know what God thinks of us? Uh, The first is, do you have a real faith or a counterfeit? Not are you partaking of all the things that the church has to offer, but do you really lean on Jesus? And the second is, does God keep his promises? Uh, I mentioned before, I live in Menlo Park, California, where Facebook is headquartered. I'm 10 minutes from Google. Uh, The nearest intersection to my house is Sand Hill Road, where for those of you in, in finance know that some of the biggest venture capitalist firms in the world are investing in tech and startup companies there. And uh, when we were moving to Silicon Valley, it was three or four years ago, John Carreyrou was um, breaking this story about Theranos and its founder, Elizabeth Holmes. He wrote a book called Bad Blood. Uh, HBO's done a documentary on it. There's a podcast on it. Jennifer Lawrence is gonna play Elizabeth Holmes in the feature film that's coming out next year. So it's a pretty big deal. Uh, this, this all was breaking, breaking news when we were moving out there. And Elizabeth Holmes was this tech founder. She, she idolized Steve Jobs. She wore black uh, mock turtlenecks. And she claimed that from a single prick of blood from your fingertip, that she could run all kinds of analysis on that single drop of blood that would completely disrupt and revolutionize uh, the medical industry, the lab works, you know, drawing pints of blood, all that was gonna be a thing of the future, a thing of the past. She, um, she fooled four-star generals 
at the Hoover Institute of Public Policy at Stanford. She inked deals with Safeway and CVS and other pharmacies. There was just only one problem. Her technology didn't work. She couldn't do it. She made big promises, but she was a complete fraud. How do we know God is not like that? Because there's a lot of people that make big promises that don't play out. And many of you have been hurt by people who said they would do one thing and have yet done something very different. How do we know God's not like that? Well, the God of the Bible is a God of big promises. He makes bold claims, right? Verse 13 makes reference to one of his most famous promises that he makes to Abraham. You remember what that promise was? That that he would make into him a great nation, that he would have as many descendants as the stars are in the sky. And uh, later this, this appeared completely ridiculous because Abraham and Sarah were approaching 100 years of age and they didn't have a single child. And they were like, remember that promise you made that would turn us into a great nation? And, and they laughed, they laughed at God about the promise that he made to them. But God kept his word. The child of promise was born. The God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob is a God who keeps his promises. See, God is not like us. When we try to convince people that we will keep our word or tell the truth, we have to make promises. We have to swear. In legal courtroom settings, we, we put our hand on the Bible and we, we make swearing promises and promise to tell the whole truth and you know, could be guilty under the penalty of perjury. But God, the, the text says in verses 13 and 14, he doesn't have anything higher to swear by. He swears by himself. He is truth incarnate. God's word never fails. He always tells the truth. Verse 18 says, it's impossible for God to tell a lie. If God told a lie, the whole universe would collapse in and of itself. He can't do it. He always tells the truth. If God says something is going to happen, it will happen. So why do we struggle with assurance of salvation? Why do we wonder, will God really keep his promise? Is this really true? Well, first, if if that's what you're feeling this morning, I want you to know you're not alone and that this is actually a part of the normal Christian life. And that's one one thing that's so great about the Bible is it tells honest stories about honest sinners who struggle with their faith. The Psalms are full of God's people regularly calling out, where are you, God? You said this, but I don't see you. My enemies are surrounding me. My best friends are darkness. Where are you, God? You see, it's, it's, it's okay to not have assurance of faith. It doesn't mean that you don't have real faith. It doesn't mean that your faith is a counterfeit. In fact, that's the whole point of this passage. The author wants to take you who have real faith and yet struggle to believe that God is true and convince you that God always keeps his word, that all the good things that God has said will in fact come true and that you can know it. And I want you to know that John Trapp, your new pastor's heart for you, is not that your leaders will always be faithful or that your cable news source du jour will always be faithful, that your friends will always be faithful, but that Jesus is always faithful, that he keeps his word, that you can count on God. If you can't count on anything else, 
You have a steadfast anchor of the soul, verse 19 says. And you can know it's true because of what Jesus has done. All the promises of God have found their yes and amen in Jesus. And the last verse of the passage, it's kind of strange to our modern ears, the climax in verse 20 is that Jesus is our high priest after the order of Melchizedek. And for those of you looking for baby names, Bible name, Melchizedek, you know, it's overlooked, little baby Melky, could be good for you. That's a strange figure. It's, it's the end of this passage. So look at Melchizedek. Jesus has come in the order of Melchizedek. You're like, that doesn't really feel like a great way to finish. Well, the book of Genesis whispers about this, this priest king, which wasn't a normal thing. You had kings and you had priests. You didn't normally have them together. But there was this king of Salem named Melchizedek who, who was a priest. And Jesus is sort of patterned after this new reality where there's, there's going to be a priest king coming, a, a king of kings that rules over the world and reigns justly in all power and might, but is a priest. He, he goes between. He bridges the gap between you and the everlasting God. He's gone behind the curtain. He's the king of love. He's written, he's written your letter of recommendation. He's at God's right hand pleading on your behalf so you can know that you are beloved by God. If you wanna know what God the Father thinks of you, look at what God the Father says of God the Son. At the time of Jesus' baptism in the Gospels, he's, he's baptized and the, and the heavens open, the, the skies are ripped in two and there's this there's voice booming from heaven that says, this is my beloved son with whom I am well pleased. And that same pronouncement, if you are in Christ, is made of you. You are God's daughter, you are God's son, and he is well pleased with you because Jesus is your go-between. There's, there's really only one question to know. Can you really know that you belong to God? Can you really know how you stand in his sight? It's one of two ways. It's, it's not the stuff at the beginning of the passage, the outward works. It's not your attendance at church or your service. Those, are, those aren't the things that ultimately decide how God sees you. Do you stand on your own recommendation or do you stand on Jesus's letter of recommendation? Do you belong to Jesus by faith? Do you trust in Christ's work for you? Or are you still working to get God to accept you? And the good news of the gospel, which you'll hear from this pulpit week after week from my friend John, your new senior pastor, is that if you're in Christ, every promise, every whisper of what God is doing, all the beautiful visions of this world that he's creating, a new heavens and a new earth where the, the lion lays down with the lamb and the, this, every sin is forgiven and every tear is wiped away from your eye. All these things will happen for you if you cling to Jesus. You can bank on it. You can count on it. You can know. Let's pray. Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, we long for this to be the reality that we know in our own hearts. It's so difficult to believe that all of these beautiful things will really come true for us because we don't deserve it. 
Thank you, Lord, for your stern warnings that you give in Scripture to to force us to reflect. Do we really believe in Jesus? Do we cling to him or are we a counterfeit? Thank you, God, for not being like us. Thank you for keeping your word. Thank you for doing something that we could never imagine that far surpasses anything we could ever dream and that it's given to us in Jesus. It's in his name we pray, Christ the King. Amen.